Well, it's good to see you all and uh, have you here. It's especially good to see some of the guys here without their wives. Fifty women from our church are on a retreat this weekend. Uh, I don't know where they'd go if they were here, but uh, it's good to be with you and uh, nice to be past the weekend. I don't know if any other guys partook in frozen pizzas like I did this weekend, but uh, actually I didn't, dairy allergy. But anyway, diving in this morning into the book of Romans, we're just a couple weeks in. If you want to turn your Bibles uh, with me, we'll be in Romans 2 this morning, verses 1 through 16 is what we'll be looking at. As I was thinking about this morning text, this morning's text, I think about how important it is to have people in your life that tell you like it is, that tell you like it is. Do you have somebody in your, maybe it's a spouse, maybe it's someone close to you. It's important to have somebody that'll tell you exactly like it is. I have to wonder if when these different churches received letters from Paul, whether or not they were excited to open them up and start reading them, or whether or not they're a little bit like... I don't know if I want to read this because it usually involves a swift kick to the forehead. And, and, so, and so this morning, this text is exactly that, is a hard word. Sometimes we hear things that we don't necessarily want to hear, but we know that they're true. I was thinking of a time or experience in my life, maybe you can reflect on one in yours where I heard something I didn't necessarily want to hear. I remember when I was around age 22, I think I've even mentioned this before in a service, it was so traumatic, where the person who was cutting my hair, yes, I did have hair at one point, they, they, the, the lady looks as she's trimming the upper back, she says to me, oh, looks like you're thinning a little bit. I was like, what? What are you talking about? I remember going home later that afternoon and had the secondary mirror and double checking, and sure enough, she was right. She was accurate, and it, it propelled from there. Maybe you can bring to mind a time, you're all staring at me blankly, maybe you can bring to mind some time where you heard something you didn't want to hear, but you knew it was true, and if you can't think of a time, you're about to experience that now. Let me pray for us. Dear Lord, we thank you for this chance to be together and just the, the community that's here and the sweet time that we can have of just celebrating you and, and freedom and uh, just uh, appropriately elevating uh, your goodness and greatness to us, elevating your son and what he's done for us. Pray now that you'd speak through this text, even though it's some hard words, God, but we believe that it's a good thing to hear truth and probably the most loving thing that you could do is to tell us the truth. Pray now that you'd speak to us, that you'd be present here in this room, that you'd be great and I'd be small. In Jesus Christ's name, amen. So chapter 2, we're starting off, and here's the first verse. We're going to start by looking at that. Therefore, you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges. For in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself because you, the judge, practice the very same things. So he gets right out of the gates here with a pretty intense word for his audience. One thing that you might notice in our last chapter, in chapter 1, there was a lot of talk about those people and references to the culture they are surrounded in, and, and it, was, it, it was an outward look. Now he shifts, and you notice the first thing he says, therefore you have no excuse, talking to his Jewish audience or religious folks of that time, sitting in seats thinking about who needed to hear the last section of the letter. 
It's like, now I'm going to speak to you, the morally upright that were shouting amen the week before when the first section was read, because they were able to say, I don't live like that, and they are without excuse. Now the text boomerangs back to them. You see, the truth is, is religion unchecked is a power trip in an attempt to justify ourselves. Think about that for a second. An attempt to justify our, ourselves. And we can get sucked into this if we're not careful, believing we've done a satisfactory job of keeping God's commands. Thinking, you know what? You know, this grace thing, yeah, I get that. But, you know, after a while, I've gotten pretty good at doing this church thing. He's, he's talking specifically to the self-righteous whose pride has blinded them to how broken they actually are. Don't forget. Don't forget, he's saying, we all need God's grace and forgiveness. So what does he conclude? He says, you have no excuse. Every one of you who judges. Now, upon first reading, you might hear that and be like, oh, I think he's talking about maybe one section of his audience. But I would propose that every one of us, if we're honest with ourselves, falls into that camp of someone who plays the role of judge. Aren't we all guilty of thinking that the people around us are a little more messed up than we are? little confession there. Don't we all think that the world around us is a there, that person down the road is a little more messed up than I am, exaggerating their faults, the faults of others, but minimizing our own, right? Exaggerating the faults of others, but minimizing our own. Paul wants to be clear here that nobody sneaks through. We're all guilty. Thanks for coming. Have a great day. No, I'm just kidding. It's, a, it's an important message to understand, and he wants to make sure that we're clear that nobody sneaks through with the red light mentality. Let me explain what I mean by the red light mentality. The red light mentality is for those of us, there's kind of two groups of people. When you see the, the light turn yellow, there's either the person that hits the brake or sees that of, oh, I better hurry up. Who, who falls in what camp here this morning? But the person with the red, the red light mentality is the person that chooses to say, it's yellow, I better speed up, and they get through, and when confronted with it, what will they say? Well, still look kind of orangish, maybe, kind of orangish, and what does that person say? But did you see the guy that went through behind me? They're really guilty. They're really guilty, and that's really the same thinking that we can slip into not being aware of our own junk, wanting to point to the guilt of the world around us. He says this, he says, you practice the very same things. It's interesting, his, his writing technique in this section, it's called a diatribe. There's a new word for us this morning. A diatribe is where the dialogue is with a real or imaginary heckler, here, it's imaginary banter with the self-righteous, kind of going back and forth with what he thinks they might come up with, telling them that you practice the very same things, not, maybe not the exact same things as, as some of the things on our list last week, but point being that both partake in condemning behavior. Both partake in things that, that equal with the same result that we saw last week, equal of deserving death, which is a pretty crazy spot to be. 
It made me think of the, the, the story that we told earlier this summer where David was confronted by Nathan. Do you remember this interaction where Nathan tells this story of a, of a rich man and taking advantage of a poor man? It's the, the rich man had some guests coming over and needed some food to provide. Instead of taking from his vast flock, he chose to steal from the poor man and take his only baby lamb to, to feed his guests. And when, when David heard about this, this situation and how it had played out, what was his conclusion? Do you remember? He says, man, that man deserves to die. That man deserves to die. And that's when Nathan turns the, 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 the tide on this conversation. And what does he say to him? He says, you're that man. You're that man. You're the one who stole. You're the one who took Bathsheba. You're the one that put Uriah to death. You're the one that's guilty. Your judgment, your conclusion that he deserves death is accurate. So for us, our conclusion that the world around us deserves penalty and consequences, that might be accurate, but make sure that we're also looking at ourselves. Jesus talked about this in Matthew 7, verses 1 through 5. We'll have them on the screen there. You might be familiar with this passage. It's quoted often. Judge not that you be not judged, for with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged, and with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that's in your own eye? He goes on, or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when there is a log in your own eye? You hypocrite, first take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. Basically, concluding that or summarizing that, you would be say, or first supposed to examine ourselves, to redirect our excellent judging skills inward. We're all really good at, at, at coming to conclusions and judgments, but making sure that we start with ourselves. In chapter 14, we're going to talk more about this idea of judgment and the difference between judging and discerning. That's an important one. But here he's starting out pointing out the fact that we are just as guilty as the world around us. Look at verse 2. We also see that I'm not exempt from this perfect judge. It says, We know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things. Do you suppose, O man, you who judge those who practice such things and yet do them yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? Do you, do you suppose? Do you, do you really think? He points out first there are some things that we know. We know that there's a God, a perfect God, that's going to judge appropriately. There's something innate in us that tells us that, that we come to some conclusions about watching the, the, the terrible things in the world around us. We're like, you know what? What goes around, we use statements like, what goes around comes around, right? We, we, we have this innate understanding that someday people are going to have to give an account. Someday there is going to be judgment, and we call out for that. We cry out for that. Those of us watching the news this week of the shooting at the, at the, the college there, a lot of us, when we saw that, there's some degree, if we're honest with ourselves, some degree of satisfaction when we heard the shooter died as well. Right? There's something in us that, that cries out for justice and something in us that says, you know what? There's a God who's going to make things right. 
But if you think about that for a moment, we innately understand that, but strangely, something in us tells us we will get away with it. Isn't that interesting how man works? If you talk to, to, to people, human nature wants to tell us it's all going to be okay in the end. It's all going to work itself out. My wife and I took teams of young adults and college students to different uh, places of outreach that we do in the Chicago area, a lot of times at a, at a mall, a lot of times at a, at, a, uh, at a community college, and just talking with people about their faith and different entry points that we'd start into conversation. But one of the reoccurring themes that we saw from people that weren't necessarily brought up with the faith is they have this conclusion, the world around us, you know what, I just think it's going to work out all right. I think the few good things that I've done, I think that's going to outweigh the bad, and it, it's, going to, it's going to end well. But here, Paul is wanting to make sure that, we, that, he, that he warns us that this self-confidence is not accurate. This self-confidence, that he, what does he say at the end there? You, who are you to think that you're going to escape the judgment of a perfect God? Nobody gets a free pass. Nobody gets a free pass, and it's important to understand that. Look in verse 4, though. He wants to make sure we understand this even deeper, pointing out that God's delayed judgment provides time to repent, the good news of sorts in this section. Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? Because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. See, the first thing in that section there, before he talked about things that we do know, in this section he talks about things that we don't know, not knowing that there's some, there's some confusion about why God is so patient with mankind. Have you ever, think back in your life, have you ever wanted a relationship that the other person wasn't interested in. Maybe you can reflect back to your junior high years or high school years, a particular crush that you had on somebody, and they were not having it. Well, whatever, for whatever reason, maybe you weren't as, as great of a person as you thought you were, and they were not interested in that relationship. That's maybe what comes to mind first about unrequited love. But how about this? How about wanting a relationship with a son or daughter? they didn't want, or wanting a relationship with a, a father or a mother that, they didn't ha- that you didn't have, or how about a sibling or somebody that you desired relationship, but what were your options? What, what, what are your options? Not much you can do. You can't change somebody, so what do you do? You patiently wait. You patiently wait. Maybe by your kindness, you might eventually win them over, right? Maybe by your kindness, eventually that relationship might come to fruition. Well, think about this from God's perspective. Isn't that the same thing? He desires to be in relationship with man. He, desi- he, he created us. He designed us to be in that relationship. All the way we've seen back in Genesis 1, he's like, man, I put this into place so that we could have fellowship, and I want that, but I'm not going to force that. That's the whole free will thing, right? So what does he do? He patiently waits, just knocking on that door, 
knocking on that door, kind of sometimes lightly, sometimes hard, knocking on that door. I'd like to have that relationship, but I'm not going to impose it on you, but I'll just keep being kind to you. I'll keep pouring out kindness. You can talk to somebody that's completely, the, the atheist that's completely rejected God, and they can point to so many ways that God has been extremely kind to them. But here's the problem. What does he say in the text? What we should understand is God's kindness is meant or designed or created for to lead us to repentance. That's why he keeps being kind. That's why he's so patient with mankind. I'll tell you what, if I was in the God role, wouldn't you be like done with, can you imagine you created man, he shakes his fist at you? Uh, think of an ant. Create this ant and he's shaking his fist at you, you'd be like, oh, sorry. You know, but, but instead, God, God's just like, all right, I'll just put up with it. I'll put up with it. Just let, let him, maybe by me being kind to this ant, I'll, I'll, he'll eventually, uh, oh, maybe how about if I, I come down and I live with him and, and then let him kill me on a cross, maybe he'll finally get it. Like, really? That's what Jesus Christ does. But instead, he says, man, but the repentance thing is key. It's supposed to be moving us. His patience is supposed to be moving us towards repentance. Why is that necessary? Because he's a perfect God, and we're an imperfect person. In order for a perfect God to be in a relationship with an imperfect person, there has to be some kind of go-between. That's the whole gospel message, where Jesus intervened on our behalf, died, absorbed the wrath of God so that we could have that relationship restored. But in the meantime, as that offer's there, waiting, extended, he just keeps on being patient. But what, what happens in that is that people presume on his patience and come to some false conclusions about why it is he's being so patient with us. Love the, my, my dad shared with me this week a, a quote from a book from John Ortberg, the difference between dogs and cats. You ready for this one? Dogs say, you love me, feed me, shelter me, care for me, you must be God. A cat says, you love me, feed me, shelter me, care for me, I must be God. (laughs) That's the difference. If you've owned a a cat or a dog, that's kind of the, the mentality that you observe in the way they approach things is either this gratitude of dogs uh, rushing to the door to, to lick your face, a cat, which I don't like. Oh, I'm sorry. Did I say that out loud? But, uh, but a cat thinks they're like, well, I don't need you, but, but I gave you everything that you wanted. I try to pet you. I try to feed you, but I'm not interested. There's a good parallel to mankind with coming to the wrong conclusion about provision and God's kindness. But what do we see in the text? The reality of how things work. The reality is, is what does it say? It says that they're storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. How crazy is that picture? The, the storing up like this, this big pot and you just keep pouring in a little bit more, a few more coals and that, that, that you're building that up. I don't, I don't know if you've found yourself at some point in your, your life in some kind of a credit card debt. Maybe some of us are even in that now, watching that monthly statement come and you're like, man, it just keeps building. I don't know how it keeps adding up so quickly. How did it go from here to, to here? And, and this is the same picture we see here of, of our guilt, our debt, with no ability to pay. Of course that's going to happen. 
when you can't make a payment, when God doesn't accept a payment till the very end. Think about that. That's the truth of how God operates. He extends us. He allows us to max out our wrath credit card, if you will, till the end. God waits to judge man's life as a whole at the very end. That's a scary reality, a scary truth to think of. But you think, if you think of it from a different perspective, isn't that the most kind thing God could do? Letting us wait to the very end, till we suck our very last breath to decide whether or not we're going to embrace his kindness, whether or not we're going to embrace the, the grace that he's extended. He's like, you know, I'm not going to make you pay for it now. I'm going to let it keep building up, building up with the simple hope, just maybe my kindness will win you over. Just maybe it'll draw you to repentance. That's how God operates with man. My sister, I've mentioned before, is a, is a chaplain at a, uh, in Denver, and one of her jobs, or her primary role, is she visits people that are terminally ill. I was just talking with her the, the other day, kind of a, a rough job. Can you imagine just going from one person to the next? And that's what she sees as her ministry, as an opportunity to share with somebody the, the hope of Jesus Christ, even in, the, in their last days or last hours. She was telling me about a, a younger man that she was talking with that got assessed with terminal cancer and uh, diagnosed with that, and he was in his late 40s, if I remember correctly, and she's telling about a conversation she had, and he, he didn't know anything about the gospel. Like He was, he was come unchurched and just clueless about the, the whole thing, and she sat down with him and just explained. She said, you know, can I take a few minutes and just walk you through this and explain what, that, what God's done for, for you, and she gets done with it, and she really sensed that he was really drawn to this truth, and really, she's like, is, is that a, a choice you, you want to make today? Is that, a, is that a decision? He's like, yes, I'm ready. He's like, I'm in. Sign me up. She's like, well, do you have any questions? Anything you'd like to, to talk through? He's like, nope, uh, you, you covered it all. I'm in. You know, and, she, and she, as she probed a little bit further, he said, you know what? I'm running out of time, and this is the hope I've been waiting for. This is, this is the good news. God's kindness allowed his wrath to fill all the way almost to the very top, to the tip top. But in his last moments, he calls out to Jesus Christ and has that forgiven, has his, has his debt that he couldn't pay washed clean. The problem, though, is many in the world, as we see in this text, come to the wrong conclusion about God's wrath. They assume that they're getting away with something. You ask the, the, the wealthy person living in, in the hills overlooking his, his property, and you ask that person, he's like, man, I don't see anything. I don't see any hints of God's wrath. I think things are going pretty good for me. You see that? That's the, tr the, that's the, the tragedy, which then, that then forms this hard and penitent heart that's described in the text because they've had the wrong conclusion Dig in their heels, but what does it say? Everybody's day in court is coming. There's going to be a righteous judgment that will be revealed. There's a different type of judgment. We talked about it last week that's more of a passive, like, okay, I'm going to just turn you over, release you to your sins. This day of judgment that he describes now, you'll see in Revelations 20, and it's a little more intense. It's a little more intense. Final judgment will align 
with the totality of the choices each person has made, apart from Christ, we will get exactly what we deserve. Apart from Christ, we will get exactly what we deserve. Look in verse 6. To see this truth played out even further, it says, He will render to each one according to his works. To those who by patience and well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality, he will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. There will be tribulation and distress for every human being who does evil, the Jew first and also for the Greek. But glory and honor and peace for everyone who does good, the Jew first and also for the Greek. First thing you might notice there, it says, He will render to each one according to his works. According to his works. So that might be a little bit confusing at first because you're like, isn't that contradicting the whole justification by faith idea? Like, isn't that saying the exact opposite? But if you think for a moment... Scripture repeatedly teaches that God judges according to our deeds. That's the basis by which He judges mankind. So He judges based on that, but we're rescued through faith. Because we can't do the, the, the good deeds piece. We, we can't. Instead, our good deeds are an outflow of our, our choice, of our faith. Our faith is evident and our works, James expounds on that greatly in his book. They reveal our faith. Our deeds aren't the cause of salvation, but they're the result of it. See here, he's pointing out that every man is going to give an account and be judged according to all of their works. But what does he propose? He proposes two options there. He proposes either the person that obeys righteousness or truth, or the person that obeys unrighteousness. It's kind of an interesting concept. What I find fascinating is that he says, to those who by patience and well-doing. So often we send this message of the gospel that, hey, all you do is you just do this, this one-time prayer, you got things solved, and then you just kind of go back to, to do whatever it is that you do. Everywhere in Scripture I see talking about enduring to the end I see a patience. I see a, an ongoing signs of change, evidences of the fact of what you actually believe in. You see this idea people are like, well, does that mean you can lose your salvation? No, you can't lose your salvation. But Scripture often, often points to false conversion. The person that, that thinks that, that a, a one simple prayer and then a, a complete disregard for what they claim to embrace that that works. Scripture does not point to that, and that's not a false confidence that we should have. Here he's pointing out that that person is patient in well-doing, that they keep on going. It's a long race revealing what their faith is actually in. Breaks my heart as a young adults pastor for years and years in Chicago when I was there, we did something just uh, in communication with folks as I went through, and anybody that ever visited the young adults ministry uh, that we were a part of, I'd extend like a Facebook invite, you know, the friends thing. And so, and so have over the, the, the years, had, I have a couple thousand friends just accumulated over, over time uh, of being there. It's interesting, though, to watch on that, and you can, you can tell a lot by what people 
post, well, maybe this is judging, but, uh, but, uh, but the whole idea, you can get, get a general direction of the course that somebody's heading, and so often it breaks my heart to watch people that, that man, they, they were on fire, they were, they were heading this direction, and they were, they were chasing after the Lord, and then you see like, man, when did they start going down that route? Man, it just stinks to see that, because what? Because maybe what they had claimed didn't really take root. Jesus talks about it in so many parables as he's here about the, the, the sower and the seed and it not taking root and being squelched by the, the thorns and the things around them. God judges according to our deeds. We have the choice to obey unrighteousness or truth. And look what he points to. He says, what comes for those that obey, obey unrighteousness, wrath and fury. A lot of times you're like, man, that, I kind of like the uh, Jesus is my homeboy passages, you know? Like I, I, like the, I like the idea of him as loving in a nice white robe with a light blue sash and a big hug, you know? But, but here's the piece. He's equally just as he is loving. He's equally just as he is loving. And so understanding that there's consequence to our choice to reject him. It describes even further, he describes tribulation and distress. How many times have you sat across the table of someone and hearing them tell the story of how they've wandered out God, outside of God's protective graces and the, and the drama and the, the tribulation that's come from that? Breaks your heart. You're like, oh man, when you make the choice to obey righteousness, the roads that that takes us on, the alternative, which I think sounds more appealing, is glory and honor and peace for those who do good. That's, that's the outcome. Say, man, that's a, that sounds like a lot easier path to go down. So many things that we avoid when we stay within the boundaries of God's design for our life. So we learn there that we're judged according to our deeds. And the last section here we'll conclude with, we also learn that there's not a sliding scale. It says, For God shows no partiality. For all who have sinned without the law will also perish without the law. And all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. For it is not that the hearers of the law who are righteous before God, but the doers of the law who will be justified. For when Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do what the law requires, there are a law to themselves, even though they do not have the law. They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts, while their conscience also bears witness, and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them on that day when, according to my gospel, God judges the secrets of men by Jesus Christ. The big idea here is this. The big idea is that we have a perfect God who establishes a perfect standard. It's not a sliding scale. It's not red light thinking. For those that he describes here, the Jewish at that time, or the religious, that have this idea that I've only messed up a little in comparison to the world around us, that thinking doesn't work. For the person who says, I didn't even hear about the law. He's saying they're without excuse as well. That's kind of a, a crazy concept. In fact, how often have you thought to yourself like, man, that doesn't really seem very fair for the, the person in, in Africa that's never even, even heard about the, the Bible or the expectations. 
Like, but, but two different times here, God, through Paul, shoots down that argument. Do you remember what the argument was in chapter 1? The first point of the argument was, listen, he's without excuse because he's seen God through his creation. Now he's pointing to the other side of the excuse. He's saying not only has he seen God through creation, he has God's law placed on his heart. It's written on his heart and it's in his conscience. So no one is without excuse. No one is without excuse. Ignorance does not exempt you from the law. You discover this if you've spent any time at an airport. The TSA people, man, they are intense. Anybody else come to that conclusion? My family and I went on a trip this past summer, and I remember passing through security, and uh, we had uh, you, you kind of thinking through, like, well, which things are allowed to go and which things aren't? And they, it's kind of this sliding scale, constantly changing. But, but I, I remember going through, and we had this got-to-be-glued gel for Chase, you know? And I'm like, that's got to go through, you know? It's, it's gel. Like, he's got to keep the, the sweet haircuts that I would do if I had hair, you know? And, uh, and so I'm, I'm passing, it, passing it through, and they're like, nope. That's got to go. It's past the ounce level or whatever the rules are. And you try to explain them, but, but I didn't know. Now the TSA person's like, oh, well, you didn't know. Well, then why don't you go ahead and keep that gel for your son? Do you think that's what he said? No. no. They're like, tough luck, sucker. Like, hand me the gel. We're going to use that to barter later amongst ourselves. Like, I don't, I don't know what they do with all of those supplies. But, but, but the truth is, the truth is, ignorance is not an excuse. Ignorance, and so what is he saying? Every single one of us. Doesn't matter if you were born Jew. Doesn't matter if you were born without the law. Regardless of your position, regardless of what you know or don't know, you're without excuse because of the way I design things. God's saying all of us are going to stand before a righteous judge. He says that it's written on your hearts. Your conscience bears witness. It either excuses you or accuses you. Neither can say, I didn't know. Again, though, he points to that day, that day that's on the calendar, that every single person has to give an account for his actions. And the person that's embraced Christ can say, man, I am messed up, I've blown up, but man, I've embraced what Jesus Christ has done for me on the cross. I, his righteousness I've adopted as my own, so I passed the deeds test because simply he was perfect. I embraced what he did. That's how, the, that's how those of us that have embraced Christ are going to be able to stand. That's a, our only hope of standing before a righteous, perfect God. But He's saying, man, if you don't have that, if you don't have, if you haven't embraced that provision, you're, you're going to be in big trouble. It's not going to go well for you. You think about it. A lot of people try to ignore this reality. And what does it say? Every person is going to be judged on even the secrets, even the things that, that nobody ever saw, the things going on behind the scenes. Every person is going to be judged by the perfect judge. It's interesting. It even points to who it is, Jesus Christ. Some people try to ignore this reality. How do they ignore this reality? They either ignore this reality by saying there is no God. 
Do you see how that's a, a avoidance, how that's coming to the conclusion that, like, I'm not responsible because I don't even acknowledge that there is a God. In fact, I, I've bought into the whole idea that everything, that truth is relative. Whatever you believe and whatever I believe, that's fine. Truth, truth is relative. That person is without excuse as well. That, per, that person is, even though they've tried to justify their actions, what's he saying here? He's saying, nope you're still going to stand before a perfect God. So that, that's the, the atheist, but here we also see that, that the person who is the righteous or the self-righteous, that person, the person that's come to the conclusion that there is a God, but I think he's going to be okay with my actions. That's a lot of people on this planet. There is a God, I'll give you that, but I think my scale of good is going to outweigh my scale of bad that person, he's saying, you're without excuse as well. That, that, that doesn't cut it. That attempt at justification, Paul eliminates all excuses and points to all of our desperate need for Jesus Christ. But thankfully, God's grace pursues the atheist and the self-righteous. Thankfully, he does, it, it, it pursues, it chases us down and finds us hidden in our, our corner of our sin and says, come on out, come on out. Even you that think you're great on your high horse, come, come on down or come on up, whichever the invite, his grace, I love it, finds us. We have a, a new little outreach team that's getting started, and we were talking this week on some, some planning for the fall and some different events we want to be a part of and, and just uh, pursue. And one of the, the ladies in the group, I, I love it, she said, she, we were talking about the gospel message and just how contagious it is. And she said, she said this about the gospel, says, you can't unhear the gospel. You can't unhear the gospel. Once you hear it, for the person that's trying to run from God, it's hard to get that out of your mind. It's, it's hard to get it out of your head. For the, the person, my hope is, for us that have embraced Christ, once you hear it, I don't want it to get out of our heads either. I don't want us to grow, oh, you know what, I think I've got this whole behavior thing down. I, I'm, I'm walking pretty close to the Lord. I'm, I'm not doing the really bad stuff. I'm just doing some of the little bit bad stuff. Like, hopefully that they don't, uh, we don't unhear the gospel as well. Hopefully, we're still aware enough of our broken state, deserving the consequence of our sin, that grace is still a big deal. Let me pray for us. God, we thank you for your word, and something written a couple thousand years ago is still so relevant to us with our attempts at avoiding responsibility, redirecting consequence. God, I pray that you would open our hearts, open our minds to the reality that we are without excuse. Our sin has left us tainted and dark, and it's so easy, easy to even head back to it, that we're fully dependent on your grace for our forgiveness. Whether we've heard the law, whether we grew up with it, whether we've been just recently exposed, no man is without excuse, is what your word says. God, I pray that we wouldn't presume on your kindness, that we wouldn't be confused about it, that your kindness is designed to draw us to yourself. God, we thank you for that. We thank you for that reality of how you choose to interact with the people you want to be in relationship with. And just keep on giving more chances, more chances. 
such a kind and loving God. God, I pray that it would never get old for us, this grace thing. We keep singing songs and we wonder if there's going to be a new song. No, it's the same one, still singing about your grace. We love you and praise you here this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. What a perfect picture of his grace, the idea of breathing it in and then exhaling his praise. Amen. Let's do that this week as we go into our weeks. God bless you.